Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Hi, guys. Oh, gosh. It's uh, so lovely to be talking to you. But I just, I was just really struck this morning when we were praying before the service. Like, what a massive thing talking about marriage is. It's like Paul, the apostle, who wrote majority of the New Testament, called it a profound mystery. And it's like, I've got 20 minutes. So I really, really humbly, really, really humbly, with all humility, present to you what I'm going to say this morning. Um, so last week, Lauren really blessed us um, with this amazing talk, didn't she, on singleness and drawing attention to the, the, the challenges and, and, and the prejudices that we sometimes have around that and looking at it as a, as a gift that we can bring to the church. And today we're going to look at the gift of marriage. And like singleness, it certainly has its, its blessings and its struggles. So in keeping with the series uh, that we've been doing on identity, relationships, and the people of God, we're going to look at how the influences of the world around us affect how we see marriage, then put that alongside some of what Jesus actually says about marriage, and then, of course, we're going to look at Paul in 1 Corinthians and a bit of Ephesians. So like the Corinthians, if we, as we've heard many times in this series so far, we live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with sexual relationships. Add to that the heady obsession with romance, which was an invention um, in, of the mid, developed during the Middle Ages, and then the more recent, really, really strong influences of our consumer-led capitalist culture. And we arrive at some of our current thinking on marriage, a lot of which is a lot of which is millennia away, both literally and figuratively, from God's original intention in Genesis 2.24. You know, in our culture, we can tend to romanticize and idolize marriage, the idea of finding the one, the one who will bring you happiness and companionship, who will accept you for who you are, faults and all, who'll be the perfect match sexually, intellectually, emotionally, someone who shares your dreams and your hopes and your values, a soulmate who personally brings out the best in you, with whom the idea of two being better than one are completely fulfilled because all their strengths cover all your weaknesses. They're the one who's going to keep you company. They're going to keep you live and young in your heart in your latter years and stop you being lonely, fulfill all your needs, single-handedly ensure that you are brought to wholeness and the very best version of yourself. <laughs> yeah. It does, it does sound a bit unrealistic, doesn't it, when I say it like that? You know, but those ideals are so tempting to us, aren't they? There's, there's elements in truth in them, and they kind of feel right. And, you know, people in our society can be so stuck on these ideas that it can actually stop them from committing to marriage. They say, okay, I'll live with you like we're married, but I don't want to actually marry you just in case the one, I mean the actual one, comes along. Or many relationships, um, you know, many people live their lives through a series of sexual relationships trying out compatibility to see if this is the one. 
sometimes actually more deliberately wanting to reap obviously the gratification of um, short-term sexual relationships because they don't want to take up the personal challenge of the lifelong commitment that marriage entails. And for every person making these decisions, you have their other halves left feeling sort of abandoned or betrayed, wondering if marriage is just an over-romanticized and out-of-date idea after all. But you know, these ideals are very shaky ground for any relationship because their foundations are worldly rather than godly. Lauren spoke a bit about last week how today's thinking puts us humans at the center of the universe instead of Jesus. And these ideals are very much part of that. You know, they're me focused, not Jesus focused. I want to be me. It's not a foundation on which to build a marriage. So this morning, we're going to explore what the scriptures say about marriage. And we're going to look at uh, six key relational values that are crucial, honestly, for all relationships, whether we're married or single, and all of which are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, our foundation, is the source of all unconditional love, full of grace, mercy, forgiveness. So before we get to to, to what Paul says about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. Let's just have a look and see what Jesus himself said about marriage. We're going to look at Matthew 19, 4, and this is what he says. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Just like our society today, there were all sorts of intimate relationships that existed in first century Palestine. And you know, even indeed amongst the the Israelites in the Old Testament, we see polygamous marriages apparently sanctified by God. But here, Jesus points us back to the original Eden plan, quoting both Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, making it very clear that the two, a man and a woman, will become one flesh, one entity through marriage. In the Genesis story of creation, something that was once kind of united, mankind, was separated into two different yet complementary sexes, male and female, when Eve was created from Adam's rib. So in the union of a man and a woman, that separation is reconciled. It points to the reality that no single sex or gender can fully express God on its own, which is why we're called into community. For Jesus, therefore, marriage, by definition, is the uniting together of one man and one woman. You know, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, this one, really genuinely worth a read if you are married or thinking about marriage or even want to know about marriage, good book. He points out that the verb uniting together or cleave in the King James Version comes from a Hebrew word that literally means glued together. Everywhere else in the Bible that this word cleave means, it means means to unite someone through a covenant, a binding promise or an oath. Marriage, therefore, is a covenant relationship founded on around God, not the consumer one 
founded around self that the world has made it. A covenant relationship places the commitment to give of yourself, the vows, as the highest value. And a consumer relationship places the returns, what you're going to receive, as the highest value. As the Church of England marriage service reflects, the covenant works three ways, with the man and the woman making oaths to God as well as to each other. You know, I'm not sure that any one of us who's made those solemn vows in front of God quite understood the full working out of those weighty promises um, um, in their married life. Like, how can we know what the future holds? And on our wedding day, and I'm, and I'm picturing here Cap as a 19-year-old standing in front of me some 32 years ago, his knees literally knocking, <laughs> nervously whispering his vows. Bless him. On that day, on that day, we can only trust that by bringing our lives together before God, he in his goodness and love will help us to fulfill those promises that we make. Okay, so we've looked about something of what the world said and something of what Jesus has said about marriage. So let's now get on to the challenges. And these are challenges of what Paul says about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. So it says, now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, he says, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if she does, um, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. And to the married, I give this command, not, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else reconcile to her husband, and her husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I am not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, you know, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Okay, so, you know, Paul deals with a number of really different scenarios here, and I'm not sure we can do them all justice today in 20 minutes. He's basically giving some really specific advice to some really specific situations, but 
What are the values on which he's basing that advice? I think the first value here is to do with being more concerned with what you give than what you receive. In other words, being sacrificial. Sacrifice is a sound kingdom value that he applies here, even the most intimate of human connections to the act of sexual intercourse itself. You know, the rub is in verse four, where he says, we do not have authority over our own bodies, which is, you know, it's a really difficult concept for us to connect with because we live in a society that has all sorts of laws, expectations and regulations in place to protect us from sexual exploitation. And a part of that is the common understanding that we alone have authority over our own bodies. And the understanding of what consent means has become crucial in many high-profile sexual abuse cases. So, is Paul saying that we no longer have a choice with regard to sexual relations within marriage? You know, I think the obvious answer is no. Exploitation is not a kingdom value, and any form of exploitation is devoid of the unconditional love that's to be the foundation of all kingdom relationships. And you know, it helps us to get a bit of understanding here. If we look at the context um, where, and look at, at where Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians. So let's just look at a few of those verses from, from chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says here from, from, from verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body which, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And the leading value here is in the first sentence, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, this again is um, consistent with all Paul's teachings on relationships. In Philippians 2, Paul uses Christ's own humility, taking on the very nature of a servant as an example of how we should, in humility, value others above ourselves. We are, in the most part, very comfortable with that teaching for how we live together as a church, in community, with, with peace and unity and love. The reason we find the idea of submission in married relationships so difficult is because society has created a power struggle between men and women, that one that we see born um, in the story of the fall of man in Genesis 3, where one of the curses over women is that they will desire their husband, but he will rule over them. If we read these lines in Ephesians, thinking, okay, well, who's in charge then? Who has the power? Then we've misunderstood, actually, what Paul is teaching. He calls us both to pick up our right responsibilities, submitting to each other and to God who works with us to help our marriages thrive. We have to trust that he who created us knows best about how we interact with each other. 
But you know, we do live in a fallen world. And the process of trying to live as God intended is a difficult one. The more so when you're trying to live out your kingdom values in your relationship and you feel like your partner isn't. So, you know, as a married woman, you know, be honest. Have you ever thought, fine, I'll be more submissive when you start acting a bit more Christ-like? Or as men, you know, it's pretty hard to take on that huge responsibility to be Christ-like when you don't even support me. And that's why Paul says in verse 7 of the Corinthians passage, I wish all of you were as I am, i.e. single. He knows it's complicated, you know. But regardless of the challenges our partners bring us, regardless of the circumstances, we are called in marriage to covenant, to faithful commitment. You know, in verse 10, Paul reiterates what Jesus says. And he says, um, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Faithfulness to our spouses is one of the key commitments we make when we marry. Oh, my iPad is playing up. Sorry, I just wound right right the way back to the beginning of my talk. (laughs) Give me a little moment. Okay, at the end of the day, we are each responsible for our own choices and behavior, and we cannot control the behavior of others, including our spouses. It's true that as in all close relationships, we do need to hold each other to account. Learning to do that well and with grace is a crucial key lesson of marriage. But ultimately, God brings change and transformation in people's hearts and not us. We have to faithfully fulfill our part of the covenant and trust that God will intervene with the, and deal with the hearts of our partners when they don't fulfill theirs. Praying faithfully for our spouses, therefore, becomes absolutely vital. Now, faithfulness is obviously a key when it comes to our pledge to give our bodies to our spouses. As with the rest of our married lives, our sexual relationships are not meant to be a power struggle, but an expression of love, humility, and servanthood. Not only do we need to have self-control with regard to keeping our sexual thoughts, feelings, and behavior within the boundaries of our married relationship, but we're also deceived if we think that being married gives us unlimited license to live out our unchecked, worldly sexual fantasies, many of which are based on self-gratification, often objectification, with little thought for the character, nature, and desires of our partners. Whether we are married or single, we have to keep our sexuality in check, sacred, and subject to the Lord. In those challenging verses, Paul specifically states that we shouldn't withhold sexual intimacy from our spouses. And you know, this can be especially difficult when there's a difference between the sexual needs of the married couple. Indeed, over time, our sexual desires can wax and wane. Stress, busyness, fatigue can all affect us, as well as hormonal changes such as those experienced by women during menopause. You know, what once felt easy can sometimes then become a challenge. You know, when I experienced the significant effects that menopause can have on middle-aged women, it made me realize how important it is to be vulnerable and talk to my husband about what's going on. 
If I were only to be driven by my body's desire for sexual relations, it would be very easy to see how my marital relations could disappear with my hormones, leaving my husband suddenly bereft and confused and distraught, and perhaps vulnerable to looking for sexual acceptance in other places. But if I follow Paul's advice and focus on the needs of my spouse and not myself, then it doesn't have to be the case. It does mean faithful commitment and adjustment for both partners, but it offers the opportunity to discuss how physical desires relate to love and attraction, an opportunity for greater understanding and, of course, therefore, greater intimacy. You know, physical intimacy should be neither forced nor withheld from our spouses out of spite, anger, nor the desire to dominate, nor because we feel we have certain rights or have differing levels of sexual need from our spouses, because the intimacy of the marriage bed is not to reflect the consumer relationship of the world, which is about self-fulfillment and gain, but about but the covenant relationship between Christ and the church, which is about unconditional love, sacrifice, submission, faithfulness. In Ephesians 5, 32 to 30, 31 to 32, Paul again explicitly states this directly relating those two relationships. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You know, Christ gave everything for us, for intimate relationship with us, his church. Like each of us, he was tempted by Satan to take the easy route, to take the gains of power and kingship to ensure he was fed, his needs were met, the gratification without the sacrifice. But he gave up his life and trusted that his father would fulfill his resurrection plan and promise. Indeed, we know that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name. He led the way, making the sacrifice, knowing that the Lord in his goodness would provide the rest. The mortal, intimate relationship between one man and his wife is designed as an earthly demonstration of the heavenly and eternal intimate relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And finally, as married couples, we can sometimes get caught up on the earthly intimacy and think that the aim of marriage is solely to get that right, difficult as it is. But you know, as with all gifts, the gift of marriage is for the benefit not just of us alone, but of the whole church. The beginning of our marriage journey, the early years, can be very challenging as we try to work out the way we're going to live together, to leave and cleave. But if we're not careful, as the years pass, we can find ourselves in that comfortable and safe place of our marriage being all about us and our offspring, never entering into the place where our marriage, the little nuclear family we create together, becomes open and part of a wider gift to the church, a building block for our community. The challenge from Lauren last week was to open our homes to those who are single, to expand our idea of family from what the world tells us a family looks like to what God tells us a family looks like, with others, not of our bloodline, grafted in to our part of the family tree. Our marriages founded on Christ should be places where not only do we flourish and grow, but we also support and love others to do the same. You know, I find it so encouraging 
to see that happening through the marriages of a number of different couples I know well within the church, inspiring couples who don't see the gift of marriage as exclusively for them, but are building a secure home and sense of family for many around them. The world tells us that we need to be responsible for making sure our own needs are met. Through the unique and challenging relationship of marriage, God asks us to follow Jesus, lay down our lives for one another, our desires, our rights, our potential, and trust that as we sacrificially devote ourselves to helping our spouses achieve those things and together look to the needs of others, Jesus will ensure that we are brought to personal fulfillment and wholeness, becoming the very best version of ourselves that he created us to be. Shall we just pray? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.